Hey, podcast listener. Are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. Welcome to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast, where I help you work less and make more. My name is Geraldine Carter. Even if you don't have selling your firm on your mind, building it as if you were going to sell it, even if you're not, is good business strategy and it will improve the value of what you build. Here today to talk with me about what he sees improving the value of CPA firms is my guest, Brandon Poe, owner of Poe Group Advisors. Brandon, welcome to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Thank you for having me, Geraldine. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So before we jump in, give listeners a quick primer on how you help CPA firms in the buying and selling process. Well, we have a process called the Seamless Succession, And often on the seller side, we develop relationships sometimes years before they actually go to market just to establish a rapport, get a checkup on the practice, help them with some of the low-hanging fruit that, you know, they can do to kind of make some improvements. As you know, we also have a, a virtual workshop for CPAs called Accounting Practice Academy that... Uh, a lot of people find helpful as they're gearing up to. It's not a one-on-one offering like yours. It's a, it's a group virtual offering. We basically have a big marketplace for CPA firms. So you want to have as many buyers as you possibly can. And we do everything we can to uh, bring buyers into our network. So we have a great buyer database and we have a, seamless process to help sellers sell. So you want to get top dollar. You also want to have simplicity in the process because you've got to continue to run your business while you're selling it. People underestimate how much energy it can take if you do that on your own. And two, we want to help you find the right buyer, not just any buyer. You need to find the right fit. Someone that's going to take care of your clients and your staff and the best way to do that again, is to have a lot of candidates. It's like if you were hiring a new candidate, do you want to interview just one person or do you want to have multiple options? So we provide options, a nice process, and um, good end results for buyer and seller. And how did you get into this space? (laughs) I called the wrong person one day. (laughs) That's the best answer. Keep going. (laughs) So... I was in my early 30s, and I had three young children, and I knew I needed a more serious career path. And so 
I was sort of just thinking about things and I've thought, well, maybe I'll buy a CPA firm. I had been in public, I had left public, met thought, well, I'll get back in and own a firm. And so I went to CPE and I ran into a friend of mine and we went out afterwards and over uh, a game of pool and a few beers, uh, my friend Chris actually had bought a firm. And he says, you know, you should call this guy. All he does is sell CPA firms. You should call him. And so I said, yeah, that's, that's not a bad idea. So the next day I go home and I couldn't remember the guy's name. I didn't write it down. So I just Googled, and this was 2003, so I Googled um, to try to find this person, and I found the wrong person. I found Howard Holmes, who was just at the time uh, starting a company called Accounting Practice Sales. And uh, I emailed Howard, and he basically said, I don't have anyone in your area selling firms. Would you like to sell firms? And I said, yeah, maybe I would. And so I got on a plane, and I flew to Dallas, Texas, and Howard signed me up. And then when he left accounting practice sales and sold the company, that was when I left and started Poe Group Advisors. <laughs> that is the best accidental story of starting a business after <laughs> drinking beers and shooting pool that I think I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here you are, having accidentally gotten your way into buying and selling firms, now having your own company doing it. That phone call, it sounds like, was 17, 18 years ago. So you've learned a lot since then. What do you see now happening in the space, especially with COVID? Well, COVID has accelerated things that were already happening in the profession. You have a trend that began a while ago to go towards more virtual offerings and more specialization in the cloud cloud firm specialization. So we started seeing several years ago firms that were focusing on particular industries and serving clients nationwide in some cases. So narrow but deep focus. And so we saw that, and I think, of course, to, to accomplish that, you often need cloud-based technology. You need the ability to serve clients virtually and often would, what would often accompany that is, is remote teams, which, are, as we all know, COVID has accelerated remote work. So I think COVID just accelerated that to a, to a large degree. I think it's made a lot of people aware that this business model, this cloud model, is not only feasible, but probably superior in many ways to a traditional firm. So what are you seeing, let's get right into some numbers here, in terms of the difference between a practice that is still sort of local or regionally based versus a firm that's gone fully cloud and virtual? What are you seeing in terms of the difference in the multiple? How much more will a virtual firm sell by by a factor of what? Well, it's a, a difficult question to answer because we're still pushing those limits. We're still figuring out that that pricing point and experimenting. And I, I'm going to just say offhand, it might be a 10 to 20% premium. It could even become more than that once the banking industry understands these firms a little better. What's the rub with the banking industry? What are they not understanding? They don't see the why there should be a premium on those. So the value, you know, the 
the bank has to have a valuation. So the bank is determining well, <laughs> that bankers are involved in setting the valuation? They have to get a valuation on every business. And if it doesn't appraise, like a, like if you buy a house, you have to mm, get an appraisal. Like a house, yeah. So it's a similar sort of limiting force. If, right, because it's not an all cash up front transfer of money. It's the, okay, I mean, gotcha. We, we do have cash buyers in the space, which is which is interesting, and that does push the that's that's pushing the the upper limit. Most CPA firms are not sold with someone just writing a check. It, they usually there's usually financing involved. That makes sense, sort of. I interrupted you, so it sounds like the bankers don't appreciate the increased potential value of a firm that's virtual compared to one that's uh, rooted. Yes, and two, the, the other factor is cloud firms tend to grow faster. Sometimes the profitability is not as strong because they're reinvesting so quickly into growth. As you know, growth eats cash. You've got to staff up in advance. You've got to, you know, you got to invest in in growth. So I think that's another just aspect of it. I want to ask you about this. Because getting <laughs> going right for it here, if a firm is growing fast, like you're talking about, growth eats cash, and they want and they want to sell for a high price, this might not be exactly the right answer. But should you like plateau your gr- step on the gas for your growth and then plateau it right before you want to sell so that you show higher margins? Ooh, that's a good question. I haven't seen anyone do too much of that, but I think maybe instinctively they do do that in in some ways like are you going to hire that other person or are you going to keep hiring and and having the training ramp up i think maybe people somewhat do that instinctively maybe not strategically but it's probably not a bad idea to to level off the growth and increase the profitability as much as you can yeah it's not a bad idea i just haven't seen anyone do that intentionally Ideally, you stay profitable while you're growing. And just because you're, you know, one of the things about cloud firms is one thing I've noticed, and this is, this is a very broad statement, and it's definitely they're not all firms are like this, but a lot of those cloud firms that I've seen, they're started by sort of entrepreneurial CPAs who are great with sales. And then they get to a certain point where the operational side becomes problematic for them. And so they're great at sales, but they're not great at the operational yeah, systematizing, making everything smooth, keeping the team humming. Right. And so they sort of get to a point where it's takes the fun out of it a little bit. And so they sell. Uh, right. Was, okay. I was going to say rise to the level of your own incompetence, Yeah, which may not be what they're experiencing if it's just not fun, but maybe the two kind of go hand in hand. If you know, you're not good at it, it isn't fun. Right. So they grow the business to a certain point and then the operations are pretty messy and they think, yeah, I'm not good at fixing that problem. Time to sell it. Yeah. Or I could, I'm good at sales, I'm good at growth, I'm good at startups, I'm going to do something else. And they have another, they're entrepreneurial, so maybe they're on to something that's bigger and better than running a cloud firm. Gotcha. Let's go back to other factors that are improving multiples at sale time. So you mentioned cloud slash virtual. Um, can you talk about being industry specific? I think being industry specific 
in and of itself is not a huge selling point because people don't necessarily look at a practice and go, oh, it's industry specific. That's awesome. I want to buy this firm. What they're looking at is the cash flow of this practice is really good and the owner hours are nice. I want this firm it, it, or it has a good staff. But I think the specialization, what I've noticed is when you have a more specialized firm, you tend to have a more profitable firm. Can you say by a factor of what? Because more is like a really wide range, like double, 50%, five times more, 100 times more. In terms of just the profitability of a, of a more focused firm? Yeah. Oh, gosh. There's so many things I think that weigh into profitability. It would be hard to isolate that factor. But a very focused firm even up to say 3 million revenue. I mean, I've seen a firm, one of the best firms I've ever seen was doing about 2.75 million in revenue. One owner and cash flow was 1.3 million a year. So right at 50%. And what we see is when firms get into a revenue of about 1.2, maybe 1.5, the cash flow to owner tends to, the, the percentage tends to decline. And that's, somewhat natural because then the owner becomes less uh, of a sort, you know, no, less billable hours of the owner. And so the, the margin tends to come down as a firm grows. I've seen smaller firms, like firms under a million in revenue, have cash flow on the high side, 65 to 70% cash flow to owner. If they're really lean and if the pricing is is well set and good client, you know, a really well-run firm can cash flow 60 to 70%. And then it might come down as the firm grows, but. Okay. Gotcha. Compared to an undifferentiated firm that might have clients in all kinds of industries, what are typical margins that you might see for them or cash flow to owner? Again, there's such a there's such a variation and there's so many factors, but yeah, you know, a poorly run firm, cash flow to owner might be twenty five percent. Okay, so it's not uncommon for a firm to be between that thirty to forty percent is a pretty common spot, which can you there's usually things that can be done fairly easily to boost that. Are there certain industries that stand out as Say somebody was thinking to themselves, okay, I need to pick an industry. I need to choose a niche. I need to get in a vertical, whatever. Is there Are there good ones to go after? Are there terrible ones that are predictable that I should avoid? Or is there a bell curve of a whole bunch that are like any of these would do just fine, just pick? Well, I think you could probably just pick, but if you're if you really want to be strategic, go where the money is, follow the money, right? <laughs> if you... If you want clients that pay well and understand value advisory and they value that relationship, they're probably more successful type of clients. So, you know, for example, if you have a practice, we sold a cloud firm that just had a lot of dental practices and that was their specialty. They had dental practices all over the country. That was a, that was a nice firm. So I, I think, you know, pick us, pick a specialty where people are willing to pay reasonable, you know, fees and their cash flow is reasonably good and you know kind of a high margin business is better than a low margin business but 
if you take any industry, you still need to be selective within that industry. You can't just take, oh, well, this dentist is a dentist. I should take this dentist on as a client. You still need to have that some sort of client acceptance process or some kind of filter um, to take on new clients, even if it's in your industry. I was going to say maybe, so maybe don't pick newspapers as your niche. Yeah. <laughs> yeah some kind of dying industry, you know, <laughs> yes. yellow page. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Talk about having a filter for who you take on, even if they might be in their niche. Cause I think probably a fair amount of people aren't even thinking that far. Like, wait, if, even if I picked a niche and say it was dentist, there would still be dentists that I wouldn't work with. Say a little more about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and why not? Maybe the client's just, you know, not friendly and they're disruptive to your team and maybe they don't pay their bills on time. And maybe the greatest filter is how you feel when that client phones you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if your gut knows. It, yeah. If you're, if you're go, ah, <laughs> then, then maybe you need to re-examine your filtration process of taking on clients. Right. That's a good gut check of the strength of your filter. Yeah. As if you have internal eye rolls. Yeah. Okay. If somebody's thinking about selling, when should they call you, ideally? Three to five years before they sell. Okay. Or even or even further out than that. I've had people call and, you know, just really trying to understand, okay, what's the market like? I've had people call, reach out 10 years in advance. And not that you need to call and have a relationship with a broker that soon, necessarily, but it's smart to think about the sale because it's so easy to plan. The planning for that event really helps you build a better business because if you're building something that people want, then you're going to build something that you would want as well. So it's just finding out what people want and what the market is like may very well alter your strategy. Oh, right. Give you more time to adjust your trajectory. Yeah, it gives you a goal to like, okay, this is what I want to sell. This is what I want to sell it for. This is what I want the business to look like when I do sell. That brings up a whole different sort of planning perspective. For the owner who's thinking, okay, five years from now, I'm going to be 62. I'm going to want to sell and kind of gets themselves into position finds out what the marketplace is likely to be looking for and then over time gets themselves into gets their firm into position to um to to be in the best position at sale time compared to the f- owner who's like thinking they might want to sell 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 and then finally they're like I'm fed up how fast can we sell this can you talk about, it sounds like you have something to say about that. Can you talk about it? And also the answer I'm looking for is something around like, what's the difference in sale, you know, sale multiple, if you will, in those sort of two extremes of that experience? Well, I do have people that do that. It's funny because I had, I mean, it, it's it's comical, but it's not. It's every year that happens. Like people call me. So today is October 15th while we're recording this and I promise you I'll get some calls next week that say, hey, I'm I'm ready to go. Can you get me out by December 31? How low do you want to go is the answer. <laughs> it, it, it's a stretch. You know, it's a stretch to go out that fast. But it depends because, you know, you can have procrastinators have amazing practices and then they're just ready to sell. And they're if they're highly marketable firms, then it doesn't hurt them at all. It, it doesn't hurt them 
other than if they're in a fire sale mode. Now, if you want to talk about fire sale, that does affect the multiple considerably. Um, we have had people pass away and we've had to sell in a hurry because practices tend to be perishable in that clients, if they know that their CPA has passed away, they're going to start looking for someone else pretty quickly. So depending on the time of year, but in a fire sale, I have seen them sell for maybe half or close to half of what they would sell in a healthy market and with, with the reasonable amount of time. And in a fire sale, in a case like that, sorry to interrupt, when you when the CPA does pass away, how much time do you have before it becomes perishable? I mean, it seems like that would be a short window. Well, it is a short window. I mean, you, if it's during tax season, it's a lot worse than if it's in June or July, right? So it, it, it will depend on when that happens. But we have put them on the market immediately, discounted them, and had a contract within a week. That's that's how fast we really should be moving, you know, to do that. Yeah, got it. Okay. Uh, moving on to lighter things. <laughs> Actually, the next question is also kind of heavy, so <laughs> maybe I'll save it. No, let's go for since we're in the heavy things. Let's do it. There's, despite being highly rational, logical people, there's got to be some emotion when it comes to selling, not your firm, but your, well, your firm, but also the relationship you have with your clients. Can you talk about how people experience that? Well, you're right. It is an emotional experience. And one of the biggest things is they're facing a phase of life that's scary. You're you know, if you're selling to retire, you're facing retirement. You know, the thoughts are, what am I going to do every day? Um, I've been doing this for so long. This has been my whole life and your identity might be tied to it. And so I think in one case, it's the, the emotion, unless there's a really clear new opportunity to go toward, if you're selling to go to another opportunity, that's a less emotional sale. If you're selling to retire, I think that's a more, can be a more problematic thing. However, I always tell people, ideally, you want something pulling you out of the practice versus you're leaving the practice because you're just tired or you don't like it anymore. It's better to be pulled out, meaning you know, I want to spend more time with my grandchildren or I want to travel with my spouse or I want to help my son start a business or, you know, whatever it is. If people have a clear plan of what they're going to do after the sale, that tends to help them let go more so. Gotcha. So book your tickets for your around the world trip. Before you call Brandon, yeah, <laughs> get the hotels booked, book the Michelin star meals. Yeah. You're like, let's sell this thing, baby. That's right. <laughs> my year long trip is on my credit card. Let's go. <laughs> we touched on this a little bit already, but I want to give it a bit more airtime. What are buyers looking for that sellers who aren't really thinking about this yet might not be aware of? I would say the biggest thing is just the difference in lifestyle. So younger buyers want more flexibility. They want more time. They want, you know, a, a practice that's a little more 
a little easier to to operate. And there's definitely a generational gap in that sort of um, vision of what work should be. So I, I tell my buyers, my younger buyers, like, you know, initially you're going to need to be ready to work hard, maybe harder than you've ever worked before because you're buying a business. There are going to be long hours initially. There's going to be a learning curve. You need to be prepared mentally. Your family needs to understand that you're going to be probably working more than normal. And then my sellers, I want them as they're planning their exit, go ahead and start making the practice less reliant on you. Cut your hours. Figure out how to get more work onto your staff or reduce the workload of the firm and raise your prices or um, you, you, you really need to get those owner hours down. It's interesting because 15 years ago, I remember I had this one practice in Virginia that was operated by this guy that worked about 3,000 hours a year. It was crazy. I mean, he just worked insane hours. And I remember it being a concern, but buyers weren't all that concerned about the hours. Now, that would be a major concern for most buyers. Like, that would be a big red flag. So I have seen that shift, and I'm seeing it more and more so. So I feel like the the people who are thinking about selling and the buyers, they sort of need to meet in the middle. But I've seen some buyers that they come in and they 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 figure out how to do it and they figure out how to do it profitably. So it can be done. That's what's interesting about that is sellers, the, the older owners, they can't even they can't imagine how it could be done. And and guess what? It can be done. Yeah, it can definitely be done. How low are you seeing like when a seller comes along and you say they want you want to get hours down, down to what? Because hours in the accounting space are kind of, there's like a different spectrum that people work off of in terms of the normal range. So are we talking like 10 hours, like 35 hours, 55? Well, like I look at it in terms of like annual hours. So if an owner has under 2000 hours a year, that's tends to, we tend to think that's pretty good. I've seen firm owners with very low owner hours, like 1,000, 1,200. And I'm, ta- I'm not talking about just billable hours. I'm talking about hour, total hours in the, in the firm. And then you've got a lot of firm owners are working 22, 2,400, 2,500, which that sort of, I, I consider that somewhat neutral. That's not bad. It's not good. And then you've got the extremes where people are working more than 2,500 hours a year, and that's a problem. That's when it becomes buyers are like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, great. That's really helpful to know kind of where the tick marks are on the spectrum. Yeah. All right. So, of course, the question that everybody wants me to ask is let's talk about multiples. What's a typical, what's a pretty common multiple for a more traditional firm? So a couple of, a couple of things to understand when I'm talking about multiples. First of all, we sell smaller firms, so under 5 million is the small firm. The other thing you have to consider 
with ter- with price is terms. You can't have a conversation about price without talking about terms. There is a common rule of thumb that's pretty well known in the industry is one times gross revenue. So if a firm's doing a million in revenue, it should sell for a million dollars. We see practices go for less and for more of that. Most of our deals are sold with fixed price on a, on a fixed price. So there are multiples, like I have heard, well, I can sell my firm for a 1.5 multiple. And my question is always, what are the terms of that offer? And what tends to happen is they, they are an earn, it's an earnout term. So an earnout for, for people who don't know that term, that would look like perhaps a 20% down payment. So if it's a million dollar firm, it's 200,000 down. And then next year, it's another 20%, but it's based on the actual revenue during that year. So if the revenue falls to 900, it's 20% of 900. And then the third year, it's another 20% and the fourth year and so on. So that's an earnout formula. The problem with that is it shifts the risk to the seller, which really most of the risk should, should be taken by the buyer. You're buying a business. There's risk involved. And the, the thing that determines client retention, not always. I mean, there are, some, there are exceptions to what I'm talking about. But generally speaking, client retention is a function of service and price. I mean, if the clients feel like they're getting value and they're getting good service, they don't, they're not going to go anywhere. So who's responsible for that once the deal has taken place? The buyer is responsible for that. So the earnout to me is a, a misplacement of risk. Yeah. It seems dicey to me to sell something, no longer have control of it, and then have your sale price, your revenue price for the sale be contingent on what the new buyer does. And, and guess what? It influences how the transition happens mm-hmm. and not in a good way. So what happens is if you have an earnout, is the seller doesn't want to let go. The seller wants to control the service. The seller wants to control the buyer. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. The financial incentives are all misaligned. They're kind of wackadoodle. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Exactly. Right? <laughs> I can't imagine how so, that would end up poorly. So then the buyer resents the seller and there's conflict and the buyer wants to make changes and the seller doesn't want those changes to be made. So it's just better if it's clean break. It's just better for everybody. If I'm a seller, I'd rather sell at a lower multiple and be out clean. If I'm a buyer, I'd rather buy at a lower multiple um, and just cover my risk in other ways, bet on myself, bet on myself and cover my risk and, and buyers, you know, when I have conversations about these terms with buyers, they all fo- you know, they focus on the downside. And we're like, well, wait a minute, what about the upside? Have you thought about the upside? Because that's why you're buying a business, because you want to grow it. Like, have you put much thought in how you're going to grow it and how you're going to improve it? And like, let's, let's talk about that. What, what is the opportunity here? And I actually see enormous opportunity in firms. Because a lot of the ones, you know, if you think about somebody selling a firm, they're probably a little tired. They haven't hustled in a while. 
there's usually within the client base, within the existing client base, a ton of work that can be mined. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, see if you can quantify. I know I'm pinning you here with seeing if you can quantify <laughs> things, but <laughs> um, but I'm going to anyways. Yeah, go ahead. See if you can quantify um, a ton of potential, not just work, but a ton of potential value, more importantly. Well, I can give you some uh, history just on a couple of cases we had a buyer, we had a buyer, this has been years ago in North Carolina, and I called a year after he had purchased. I said, you know, how's it going? Oh, revenue's up 35, 36% over last year. Like, that's great. My immediate thought was he had done some marketing. And I said, what did you do to market the firm? He said, I didn't do any marketing. All I did was talk to the business clients, started doing some strategy meetings with them, and I uncovered a lot of basically consulting-type projects, very light consulting, light advisory projects. This particular CPA had some industry background, which I do find is helpful. One observation I've had is if, you've, if you were an auditor or if you've worked in industry in public practice, those people tend to find advisory work pretty easy to get into. And that was his experience. He had, you know, he had worked in on in private accounting for a while and had a previous public accounting experience. So I feel like advisory is what accountants should be doing. I I, I almost would say all of them should be doing it. Like it's it's almost you're almost stealing from people if you're not doing it. Like you're stealing your talent and your knowledge if you're not doing it. And people have all sorts of reasons why they're not doing it, but they're not really helping their clients if they're not doing it. And without necessarily shitting on people and knowing what's right for people, I don't disagree that there's a ton of opportunity there and business owners are just thirsty, thirsty for more guidance and expertise. And even without being an industry expert, just more help on thinking about the numbers six months, 12 months, 18 months down the road about how much can I afford to hire? What would I have to sell in order to be able to afford this kind of hire? And just thinking through those numbers is so much harder than I think many CPAs realize that it is for your everyday business owner. Well, you take your own skills for granted sometimes, right? And I think a lot of CPAs don't realize they think their clients know this stuff. Like, I think that's often the case is they think the clients just, well, they have to know what their profit margins are and their, their cash flow. They, I used right? to get dizzy with, um, when we were trying to, we were figuring out hiring and costs and staffing and whatever. And it was the year that the um, social security tax was 6.2 for the owner and 4.2 for the employee. And like at 7.2 for self and like it, I just, I mean, I can handle math and I just could not keep track of how much social security tax, how much Medicare, how much Medicaid, how much self-employment. I was just like, what? I can't, I can't even. So for, for listeners who want to hear a lay person talk about trying to track yeah, I mean, employment taxes. I mean, business owners, you know, I'm, I'm um, involved with the entrepreneurs organization, EO, and I'm around business owners all the time. And you, they don't, they really don't think the way accountants think. They think, you know, they're, they're focused on sales. They're focused on, 
there's a lot less focus on the financial side of the business than than a lot of CPAs are are focused. Yeah. So. And, and perhaps a lot less, in fairness, a lot less focus on the financial side than a CPA or any, or uh, than a CPA yes. would prefer. It might be good, Correct. but nonetheless, they're still focused on lots of other things. Okay, so we talked about the multiple for more traditional firms and the sort of rule of thumb of 1x gross revenue. If a firm was doing a bunch of things really well, what's a typical really high multiple that somebody might shoot for? Well, there's one variable that that can't be easily controlled, and that's location. So we have seen certain markets, just like a housing market, the market uh, location will influence the, the multiple quite heavily. We have just, in fact, this year, we had a firm sell in the Toronto market for, a, for a mo- over a 2x multiple for a cash deal. So that's that's our company record is a is a two x, which is great for a CPA firm. So this particular firm was not a cloud firm; it was a traditional firm. However, it was in a very good market. Toronto is a is a very hot market. Um, big you know a big metropolitan city, and you have a lot of potential buyers in a big city, which is. One of the reasons cloud firms sell well because the you're not limited by geography on the number of buyers that you might have. So location is a big Im- influencer on the price. The firm that sold for top dollar, it was um, a good size. So the size actually impacts the multiple as well. So if you think about it in terms of the number of potential buyers, that's sort of the perspective that will help you think through pricing. So if there are a thousand buyers for a practice, it's going to go for a higher multiple than, than if there are two buyers for a practice. If you want to um, get the maximum for location, then cloud is probably the best to, to maximize that location. Cash flow to owner is key. Uh, that particular practice that sold for that high multiple, I believe cash flow was about 65 to 70% of gross revenue. It was a very efficient operation, um, a very narrow focus in, in terms of the type of work they were doing. So one of the things that we've noticed is if a firm, if a small firm is trying to do multiple different service offerings, their cash flow tends to be not good. So this particular practice was, was kind of like a machine. Give me multiple different service offerings so listeners can recognize it if that's them or if it's not them. So if you're a small firm and you're performing audits, like let's let's say you're doing three or four audits, guess what? You're probably losing money on those audits. If you're doing payroll, tax, tax planning, um, I've seen financial services be a big one. So people dabble in, in wealth management or they dabble in audit or they pretty much anything you're dabbling in, you're probably distracting yourself. And So cool it on the dabbling. Yeah. Expert witnessing, uh, business valuation, all the stuff that everybody wants you to do. They say, hey, this is a great revenue offering. I, I think people get bored and they're like, oh, this might be interesting to do. I mean, if you want to just do it, for fun, then go for it. But it's probably going to hurt your bottom line. 
Yeah. Okay. Got it. So location, size matters, cash flow to owner, efficient, narrow focus. Cool it on the dabbling. Yeah. And, and, and keep those owner hours. Keep those owner hours. Owner hours. Under 2,000 a year. Under 2,000 a year. Um, last few questions here. Have you seen, subscription is all the rage. If you read John Warlow's book, Automatic Customer, he talks about nine different kinds of subscription business models. I have not seen anything in terms of subscription beyond monthly recurring revenue for ongoing services. I'm wondering if you've seen anything, and if so, what are you seeing? How, what's the impact? I have not seen that in the CPA firm. I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see if some of these platforms offer some of that to to help people do that. You know, there's a couple of payroll providers that um, will offer sort of recurring revenue if you have people sign up for their platform. And I guess there could be some of that. Yeah, I tell you though, in in a in one sense, however, I did see, and this is a different sort of idea to, to leverage your your expertise as a CPA. But I had a client who exchanged services for startups for equity position in their companies. You know, for for like he sort of would bet on startups and he would do some bartering for services for equity. And he ended up doing really well for himself because he had a lot of clients were his partners. And what he would do is he just became naturally an advisor because he was also a partner. I think some of the really savvy, successful CPAs have done that. And of course, you got to be careful with that sort of. Yeah, interesting. Sounds creative. Yeah, it's a little creative, but um, people do it. Cool. So, okay, last question. Oftentimes it's easy to believe that something isn't possible because we haven't seen it be possible yet. What would it take to sell a CPA firm at a 5X multiple? I think it would have to look a little bit more like a technology firm where it was so systematized and scalable Mm -hmm. that the growth potential would warrant that sort of multiple. Interesting. I love it. Challenge accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else before we wrap up here that you think listeners ought to know? I think they should know that planning is not a waste of time. You, you make mm. yeah, you you make more money in the time that you spend planning your own business than executing. Planning changes everything. Yes, I love that. And think about that too in helping your business owning clients plan. How valuable that is for them. Yeah. You just wrote an ebook. Listeners may want to get their hot little hands on. Can you tell them what it is and where to find it? Yeah. The title is The Unplugged Vacation How Accounting Firm Owners Can Take a Proper Holiday Without Checking Emails. And you can find it at pogroupadvisors.com slash unplug. It's a nice little 50 page book. It's an easy read, but um, I've personally taken. I took three weeks off without checking email or checking into the office. So it can be done. Excellent. I love it. And I think listeners are long overdue, many of them, for an unplugged vacation. Absolutely. Brandon Poe, it's been a pleasure having you on the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, this has been a fun conversation, Geraldine. Thanks for having me. 
If you have your sights set on the finish line and you want to set your business up for maximum value, but you don't know where to begin, check out the resources at Poe Group Advisors, where you can also download the Unplugged Vacation. You can find the link to both in the show notes. And the next time you find yourself dabbling in an audit or business valuation, head on over to SheThinksBigCoaching.com to see what's possible to create with a narrow focus. Then take the next logical small step and subscribe to my daily drip newsletter. You'll get one easily digestible tip a day on how to position your business and how to systematize to be more efficient so that you can improve your cash flow to owner. That URL again is SheThinksBigCoaching.com. All right, that's it from me. Have a great week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.